truth in our day has become a point of contention. What is the definition of truth itself? As people seem to come to a point of saying that they want to speak their own truth. And think about what that means. Rather than seeking to understand an objective truth outside of yourself, what you're saying is that someone... Truth is based on their perspective. You know, I I believe this, and that's good for me, and you believe that, and that's good for you, and we can get along by believing different things and being okay with those different things that you believe. And really, this is a form of pragmatism, you know, getting along as best you can. If it works for you, then good. And years ago, I remember uh, R.C. Sproul when talking about the existence of God, describing this sort of relativistic idea that if you believe in God, if it works for you, that's great. And he responded by saying something to the effect, not an exact quote because I I couldn't find it, but this is what I recall from it, right? The, The God that we believe in exists whether you believe in him or not. And no amount of me wishing that he exists is going to conjure him up. Right? The God we believe in exists whether we believe in him or not. He is the first actor, the creator of the world, and we are called to acknowledge him in light of that truth. And so even when it is uncomfortable, even when those who may be outside the faith take issue with that, and many would prefer that we would just be more flexible or take a more practical approach in, in how we hold our own faith. We see that even today, when if you just mix your ideas with everyone else's, that will help you get along better. And that was true even in the New Testament era, right? Jesus' disciples and even the early church, they could have gotten off a lot easier if they had tempered their affirmations of Christ as the Messiah with the cultural understanding of the day. And so the temptation for us may be to avoid conflict. To avoid that tension that we see as we interact with those who disagree with us. And that brings us to Matthew 10 this week. Last week we talked about fear. And, but this week in Matthew 10 we're talking about how they are called to confess Christ. Even in the midst of conflict. And in that context, here are ways that Jesus admonished them to confess Christ before others. So we're going to be talking about how we confess through public profession, that we confess Christ by taking up our cross, and we confess Christ through the way we show hospitality toward his disciples. So, let's go over to Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 32, and I'll read for us. So, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet receives a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So, as we explored the past few chapters in Matthew's gospel, we saw Matthew makes the case that Jesus is the promised Messiah. That's a a big theme over this second section of the gospel that we've been going through. And and now he sends his disciples out to proclaim the good news of that messianic kingdom. And in so doing, he has to address the persecution that will follow them when someone does publicly make that profession of faith in Christ. And that's where we've come to now in chapter 10. The disciples have been sent out on this mission to declare the arrival of the kingdom to Israel. And they were sent into the harvest with instructions on what they were to do. It was an immediate need set in the context of Israel at that time. And they were to, um, to proclaim uh, the kingdom, right? The, the kingdom had come. And Jesus reminds them of not to be afraid, right? Not, not to fear, Uh, Jesus reminds them of the sovereignty of God, who created life and can end life. And God knows all things, even the fate of the birds of the air. Yet these disciples are worth more than many sparrows. And we see the immense comprehensive power of God set against the meekness of his kingdom citizens. Right? He is both infinite and personal. He cares for those who trust him. And so those who persecute, they can take life. But God's plans are greater still. And that's what brings us to this passage this week. Right? We see Jesus addresses the specific issue. What happens when persecution comes? And how are we to respond to it? What do you do when dragged before the town and made to give an account for what you're doing? And Jesus gives some specific examples for them. Specifically, it's an opportunity to give testimony to Christ, to give our confession of faith before others. And this calls them to deal with their fears. It also calls them to rest in a reward of being acknowledged before their father. And it calls them to trust in his provision. So, this section further clarifies the mission. Rather than fear, we're called to confess Christ before others. And rather than collapse under persecution, we're called to prioritize following him and taking up our cross. And rather than fearing association with those being persecuted, we're to be hospitable towards them as Christ's disciples. So we confess Christ through public profession. We confess Christ through taking up the cross. And we confess Christ through hospitality towards his people. All right, so let's look at that first one, going back to verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, 
I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Well, so some see this as the, a specific context of a court of law. Right? In other words, when dragged before the court, the disciples confess, and then Christ acknowledges them before a different court, the court of judgment of the Father. In Acts 4, we do see Peter and John get dragged before the council. Years later, the early church suffered similar persecution, and they were even asked to obtain a document certifying worship of the cult of the emperor. And some did this as a matter of expediency, and others refused and suffered for it. So history does bear out this concern that Jesus is bringing up here. Both the biblical text and church history reflect it. But whether this is specifically a court is not the main issue. Right? It's a setting where one's testimony is being judged by outsiders with the potential for negative consequences. So this could be before leaders of a town who call you to give account for what you're doing there. Or it could be when asked by hostile individuals why they are going around and saying the things that they're saying. So Jesus is instructing them not to fear persecution for professing Christ. And we see a similar theme in Revelation. Those who remain faithful to the Lord will be conquerors, though they will not see the fulfillment of God's plan until the end. Even Revelation 3, verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. So the Lord will not blot them out of the book of life. Similarly, in Matthew 10, Jesus will acknowledge them before his Father. And so the call is for them not to shy away from acknowledging Christ. How are we to reconcile this with other places in Scripture where you may hear something different? You know, in wisdom literature, uh, Proverbs 17, uh, verses 27-28, talk about the wisdom of being quiet sometimes. It says, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise when he closes his lips. He is deemed intelligent. Right? The person in verse 27 is measured, level-headed, careful with words. Now, the person in 28 is, though a fool, remains silent and is able to avoid the embarrassment of opening his mouth. But the point of the Proverbs is that remaining silent at times can be wise, or at least for a fool it prevents others from seeing their foolishness. But in either case, silence may get you through a difficult situation by not drawing too much attention to yourself. Those verses are talking about the application of wisdom and how we communicate. And yet the Lord tells us, he tells his people not to be silent concerning him. Not to fear others concerning acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah. And put another way, being a disciple involves acknowledging Christ before others. And so there may be wisdom expressed in how one articulates one's position or dealing with certain situations, but we are specifically called to acknowledge Christ here. So, this context here is persecution from scribes and Pharisees and Uh, We see some of that earlier in the chapter. In verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep 
in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So Jesus is preparing them for this persecution that's coming. And they are to be wise in light of that. He also gives comfort by pointing to the bigger picture of God's plan. Right? The good news will be proclaimed even to the Gentiles. So beyond Israel, he's looking forward to, to where it's going. And Jesus also gives this assurance of comfort. And we see that in verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are more value than many sparrows. So the news of the kingdom is to be spread even to the Gentiles. There will be persecution, and yet the Father knows your situation. Right? Therefore, don't fear. Rest in the comfort and the compassion of the Lord. And it's in this context that we come to this passage. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Some see a common source here. There's definitely a thematic overlap with 2 Timothy 2, which says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So there we find both the warning concerning disowning Christ and the consolation of his forgiveness and faithfulness. So the persecutions that were faced in the early church, this topic came up. What to do about those who failed to confess under persecution. And Peter himself faced this situation as he denied Christ three times. Persecution from those who do not believe was a reality for them. And it's a reality in the church around the world today. Right? Within a generation or two, the church would face strong persecution at the hands of the Romans. And for a time, they were overlooked because of connection with Judaism. But once they kind of grew out from under that, uh, that perception of connection with Judaism, then uh, they were under a microscope at that point. Right. Christianity emerged more than a Jewish sect, and the uh, declaration of allegiance to Christ was a central issue for the church, and that was a central issue for those who persecuted the church, too. Because what is the content of that confession? What do we mean when we say we confess Christ? Right. The, the world will put up with all kinds of ideas as long as you're willing to mix them together with other ideas. And if you're not willing to mix with those other ideas, that's when you get problems. Right? So this independence from the state cult was a key feature of early Christianity, and it invited persecution. Because if what they believed about God is true, there wasn't room to follow some other cult, some other belief. And yet... Christians are instructed to live peaceably, to respect authorities, to pray for leaders. And despite this goodwill towards rulers, their peculiarity invited persecution. And some said that those who denied Christ were cut off. Others argued that there is forgiveness in the Lord. And in the end, 
Uh, the church showed that forgiveness that is in line with Second Timothy, in line with what Peter received and being received back to Christ. Yet, for those who have turned away, we're not giving consolation concerning them. If someone turns away to another religion and away from Christ, they are no longer professing to follow Christ. They are not counted among those who believe. And this is the difference between some, some folks would say that, you know, as long as you said something once, then you don't have to worry about anything. Um, but the, the classic teaching is perseverance of the saints, which teaches those who are in Christ are not finally and fully, you know, pulled away from the Lord. They will, they will come back to the Lord. And so we see this as a warning in Matthew 10. But there's also this promise of restoration professed in John's gospel and in 2 Timothy. So for those who turn away and remove their profession, there, there is a warning in this passage. Okay? And we see this today. Rulers expect a strong allegiance so that nothing challenges their authority. They may apply their rule flexibly, but then they will crush anything that seems absolute. So, in China, we, we've seen this. Right? The church is allowed as long as it is syncretistic with the state, state-based churches. And uh, this has appeared in other countries. Missionaries had to leave other countries in the last few years because of similar persecution. And even when in the West today, even the idea of religious freedom is being questioned And so Jesus is preparing to send his disciples out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom in the midst of persecution, and they acknowledge him. Right? They, they have received comfort and consolation of being acknowledged and received by the Father. Okay. So let's look at this next part where as, as people confess Christ, they're identifying with Christ. And we see this confession described by Jesus here as taking up the cross. So we're going to talk a little bit about that taking up the cross and the connection with our identity in Christ. Starting in verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Peace versus a sword. This section is an application of the last section. If you confess Christ, then there will be those who disagree with you. And those disagreements may be close to home, even among your own family. So this sword represents a separation, a point of division that can cut even between families and close friends. Now, elsewhere we see that we're to care well for our families, and and yet there will be a wedge between those who believe and do not believe. So he's not encouraging disobedience to parents or making enemies of our friends. But he is saying that being faithful to Christ will be a cause of division 
in those relationships. And so why would family turn away if you acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah? Because they value other things. Because they see confessing Christ as foolishness. You may have heard mockers in our day call God a foolish waste of time or more provocative things like a sky daddy just to tweak you a little bit, see if they can bother you. Others may have a faith that is really tied to their other ideologies, and that was true even in Jesus' time. The zealots were tied to a nationalist Israel. Others may encourage you to go to church because culturally it's a good thing, but they don't expect you to actually live that way, live consistently with it. So Jesus expects our loyalty. Now this is an illustration of how we are to proclaim him. We can expect pushback, but we are not to fear. And we profess Christ even if it means that family would dissuade us from it. It's more important to profess him. Now Jesus himself says in Matthew 19, verse 19, Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we saw back in Matthew 8, verse 21, this uh, idea of somebody who uses family as an excuse not to follow. Right? Another's disciple said to him, Lord, let me go first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So we're called to care well for our families. We're called to have concern for our neighbors. But that love and concern is not in opposition to our faith or confessing Christ. We can do both, but we confess Christ and we live our faith and love and compassion towards our family and neighbors as best we can, and some will not allow us to do so. They will make confessing Christ a cause of division. And our calling is to show compassion in the midst of that conflict, in the midst of that sword that is brought between us. So realize that there is a wedge. It's seen in, in what we confess, But it's there because of a different identity that we find in Christ. There's a different purpose. There's a different orientation towards life when you come to Christ. And we see that in this phrase of take up the cross, death to self, and new life in Christ. That phrase, take up the cross, is pretty common evangelical language. You've probably heard it many times. But pause and realize for a second, the cross is an instrument of death. It's execution. It represents a death sentence. Sometimes taking out the cross is thought of just a burden for discipleship. But it represents much more. It means dying to self. It means an upheaval in our life. And see how this division between family members and taking up the cross are both illustrations of how our values and our goals and our priorities are radically changed when we turn to Christ. And so new life in Christ is not just a shuttle shift in our goals. It's not just Jesus as a life coach giving you advice on how to live better. Make life easier based on points of wisdom. It's a complete upheaval in the way you see life itself. So Jesus is honest when he says that this kind of change will bring some division into our lives. 
that some will think that it's bizarre to follow Christ in this way. And yet, he says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Finding life. And there's the contradiction. Losing life will find it. And we lose the life that we once thought we had. And we find that life in Christ is much greater. And those who cling to their life ultimately will lose it. And this, again, illustrates that upheaval in priorities. So, when we come to Christ, we find a new identity in Christ. When we turn to Christ, what you value will change. And many find more in common with other believers than with their own family. Families move and change. Your brothers and sisters will grow older, some will move to a different town, they'll, they'll move in different social circles, they'll find themselves in different walks of life, they will look back, and they may find less in common with one another. But the gospel is an anchor to the believer. And so friends who have fellow believers in Christ with them, who have not spoken in years, they'll meet with them again, and they'll instantly have something in common that's vitally important to their life. Christ is a steady anchor for us, a sure hope. And that common hope is what binds believers together in a way that's peculiar to the world looking in. As a point of application, consider baptism. Baptism is an opportunity to confess Christ, and it represents this identification with Christ in death and resurrection. And so... There's a connection between points one and two thematically with baptism this week. We no longer live for our own purposes, for our own goals, for our own aims. And Paul makes this argument. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that a body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If you've avoided baptism because of a fear of speaking before the church, I'd urge you to face that that fear head on. In coming for baptism, you're acknowledging him before those who agree. But Jesus calls you to even more than that. He calls you to acknowledge him before those who do not agree. Another point is why we are called to suffer. Holding fast our confidence and hope. The the image of the cross invokes that suffering. But taking up your cross does not mean suffering for being insufferable. (laughs) If you are insufferable, that burden that you feel, it's not the cross. It's a yoke of worldliness. Don't pretend that an unchristlike nature is carrying the cross. And far from it. Taking up the cross includes this call to pursue holiness and Christ-likeness in our lives. There are many things that one could be courageous about, but Christ calls us specifically to confess Him. Right? The content of that is the confession itself. So, Who can be 
you could be an unbeliever and be pro-life. You could be an unbeliever and be pro-family. Jesus is not just calling us to issues first. He's calling us to himself. But it's even more than that. Our identity is bound up with him. So it's not just this acknowledgement that Jesus is a a nice guy or that he's right. It's finding our identity in Christ. So allegiance to Christ is found both in the pursuit of Christ-likeness and in valuing God's ways in life. Those are implications. So I'm not just saying that just preach the gospel here. What I'm saying is that Christ in his cross is the center for the unbeliever. And everything else follows from that. Personal character, social ethics. There are many implications to finding our identity in Christ. But may our boldness be centered in the cross. And that's why we are called to suffer. In Hebrews 3.6, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence in our boasting, in our hope. So, we confess Christ by professing him. We profess Christ in taking up the cross. And there's another implication to that identity that we find in Christ. We, that identity we find brings us to a point where we have solidarity with Christ. And that's where we come to this third point. We confess Christ through hospitality towards his disciples. Let's read, starting in verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Whoever receives you, receives me. Let's get this right, right? We are to graciously receive and show hospitality to Jesus' disciples as though we were showing hospitality to Jesus himself. He talks about the prophets, the righteous, and the little ones here. The prophets in the Old Testament and the righteous, they're persecuted for holding fast to this confession of faith in the one true God. But Jesus bounds this on both sides with talking about his disciples. On the front end, he says, whoever receives you receives me. And on the back end, he talks about these little ones. So he's preparing them for this persecution they can expect by tying back to this Old Testament reality of these accounts. And these statements are surrounded there by, by receiving the disciples. So given the solidarity between Christ and his people, and given that they are little ones, how do we respond to them in the midst of persecution? Christ calls us to extend hospitality towards his people. So first we see solidarity between Christ and his people. We belong to him in such a way 
that we are to be received just as Jesus himself is received. Right? There's many aspects of this solidarity that we see in Scripture. Right? Christ intercedes for us because we belong to him. Right? When the Lord looks at us in our sin, he sees Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. Thus we're justified before God based on the work of Christ. Jesus' disciples are called to identify with him publicly. To acknowledge him before others, before rulers and authorities. And if you're found in him, then your life is hidden with Christ in God. Second, we see their stature. It's counterintuitive. Matthew often refers to these little ones, or least of these, as disciples. Right? Three times Jesus uses the term in Matthew 18, which is often referred to as the Sermon on the Church. And what image does this bring to your mind? Right? These are not powerful people. These aren't the rich. They're not the rulers. But they are those who follow Jesus. And third, we've already established that this is set in the context of persecution. These, these disciples who are like little children, they can expect opposition, but they find their value in identifying with Christ. And so these themes of solidarity and weakness and persecution, they come together in this admonition towards hospitality. And normally people are honored to have a great person in their home. But what about somebody who's weak, who's been identified with Christ and has seen opposition? Right? Jesus addresses weakness and identity in Christ several times in Matthew's Gospel. So let's look at a few of those. And back in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, in, in 5.11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The blessing here is to be joyful, full, complete, having the fullness that can only come from God. And this is set in the midst of this persecution. And in response, we're to rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Jesus addresses this related concept of first and last in Matthew 19.29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold, will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And again, in Matthew 20, verse 15, I am not allowed to do what I choose, or am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. In the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew 25, Jesus again shows the solidarity between Christ and his people. I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. They are the ones who recognize that he came to bring a new and better kingdom. 
They are a contrast against the power and authority seen in the world. And so if you invite one of these little ones into your house and even give them a cup of cold water, you will receive a reward. And the disciples being a little one is maybe a little counterintuitive, right? The, the hospitality, the cold water is counterintuitive. Right? And the reward of the kingdom is different than what people would expect. They're all arranged around the priorities of Christ's kingdom. We see this over and over again in Matthew's gospel. And I just pointed out five places where the disciples are, are little ones or the first will be last. And there are more. Jesus comes back to these same themes again and again. And it tells us something about the nature of the kingdom and about the nature of his disciples. And they're not great and powerful in the eyes of the world. And they can expect opposition, but they're called to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ despite that opposition. So to the world, they are last, but in the kingdom, they are first. And we show hospitality to them in light of their identity in Christ. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So the world sees them as peculiar, mistaken, wrong, and weak. Yet Christ says, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And we often think of union with Christ in terms of salvation. But here we find another application. And that's care for his people. Hospitality in the midst of suffering. And so Christians use words like family, care, and adoption. And this is a rubber meets the road application of those ideas. Whoever receives these little ones in his name receives him. And belonging to Christ has implication for our confession before others, but and for how we go about new life, and for our hospitality. And all of these take on greater weight in a hostile culture. And so, faithful confession and conflict. Despite opposition... Confess Christ through public profession. Right? Be willing to stand before others and acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. Proclaim Him. Acknowledge Him. It's central to the witness of the disciple. And do not fear. You're of more value than many sparrows. Right? We, we confess Christ by taking up the cross. So find your identity in Christ and know that your life is no longer your own, but you now live for God. And Jesus calls his disciples to that radical change in life that's marked by Christ's likeness in prioritizing his kingdom. And we confess Christ through hospitality towards his disciples. So in, in light of this, this connection between Christ and his people and in light of their stature of meekness as little ones, and in light of the persecution that they can expect, we're called to show kindness towards them. If we belong to Christ, then let us have a caring, gentle concern for them. And so let's consider how we, as a church, can go through this life together, confessing Christ, even a world weighed down with, with conflict. 
Let's pray. Father, Lord, help us to profess our trust in Christ before others. Help us not to fear. Help us not to be weighed with concerns over consequences and status. Help us not to fear our own articulation, what words we will use. But just help us to be faithful. Help us to find our identity in in Jesus. And let that not just be a jumble of words that we hear, but something that is transformative to our lives. That we would be willing to die to self and to live to Christ. Even if that draws conflict with those around us, that we would cling to Christ. And Lord, help us to care well for your people. Help us to have compassion towards those who, you know, even as Paul said, those who are in opposition, to be patient and gentle. Help us to be willing to speak truth with that gentleness. Help us to to care well for them in ways that draw them towards towards you in growth and Christ-likeness. And in all of these, help us to rest in you and your care. And knowing that we do not have to fear because of your care for your people. And so, Lord, in all these things, help us to trust you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.